Hello, and welcome to History Tarts. Bite-sized morsels of history they never taught us in school. I'm Annette Mayfield, and this is History Tarts, a podcast where we look at events in history, but not in the way it's presented at school. Here's my podcast partner in crime, Graham Cairns. Thanks, Ned. I don't know why so many people hated history at school. Well, actually, I do. It's because they were taught history that was dull and boring and full of names and dates, but not stories of real, living, breathing people with all of their triumphs and their tragedies and their high points and their heartbreaks. So that's what we're going to do in these podcasts. Take apart the events of history and look at what really happened and why. The good, the bad, the ugly, and quite frankly, the ridiculous. So history tartlets, let's get baking. And this episode, an incident close to home for Annette and I, the Battle of Brisbane. The Battle of Brisbane took place during World War II Mm -hmm. in the city of Brisbane, Australia. In early 1942, Japan had launched a massive campaign to conquer much of Southeast Asia, including the Philippines, Malaya, Singapore, Indonesia. As part of their campaign, the Japanese forces had launched air raids on Darwin mm-hmm. and other Australian cities, causing widespread panic and fear among the population. So in response, the United States and Australia had formed an alliance mm-hmm. and agreed to cooperate in the war effort. So as part of this cooperation, thousands of American troops were sent to Australia to help defend against the Japanese invasion. The Australian government welcomed the American troops but there were concerns about how they would be received by the Australian public. Mm. So one of the main destinations for the American troops was Brisbane, our city, a major city in Queensland. At the time, Brisbane was relatively small, with a population of about 335,000, which, interesting enough, is the same population of the country of Vanuatu at the moment. Now, you're a big cruise guy, Graham. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've been to Vanuatu before. Yes. What's it like, just roughly? I haven't been, but it's... Vanuatu's lovely, subtropical, Hmm, a bit like Brisbane. About 300,000 people, a bit like Brisbane. But the thing is, those are spread across a dozen or more islands, whereas with Brisbane, you're talking about people being in one big country town, which in the time that we're talking about during World War Two, and in fact, largely until the 1970s, was all Brisbane really was. Yeah. So because you're a cruise guy, how many people on average are generally on a cruise ship? Look, on, on a big cruise ship, you can have, say, 3,000 passengers. Yeah. So... The amount of American troops that turned up is the equivalent of 20 of those cruise ships. <laughs> That's going to make an impact. There was at least 60,000 American troops that turned up to Brisbane. That's an impact. It's like turning up to Vanuatu on 20 cruise ships and being like, well, this is home now. 
The arrival of the American servicemen brought with it such a range of cultural differences, as you can imagine. The cultural divide was particularly evident in the differences in attitude towards alcohol and violence. So the American servicemen were known for their drinking culture and were often allowed to drink freely in public spaces, such as bars and clubs. Which is interesting because until a few years ago, almost every Australian jurisdiction, you weren't allowed to drink in public. You weren't allowed to leave a bar. You, If you took your drink outside the the bar or at the very least the beer garden, then you were subject to arrest. But of course the Americans were used to being able to drink wherever they wanted to. Yep. Yeah, so the Americans were allowed to drink wherever they wanted, really, and it was in complete stark contrast to Australian culture, which, at least at that time, was more reserved when it came to alcohol consumption. Additionally, American soldiers were often seen as more violent than the Australian counterparts, with many Australians viewing them as rough and undisciplined. Mm-hmm. Now, I say... At that time, they were much more reserved because I can't think of anyone at the moment thinking that Americans would drink more than Australians. No, we've made a, a, a badge of honour of, you know, going out and getting hammered on the weekends and during the week and, in fact, any time. It's not actually true, but it's, it's how we see ourselves, yeah. Yeah, and sadly for the Australians, the Americans just had better stuff overall. The American servicemen had post exchanges that sold a huge variety of items. Food, alcohol, cigarettes, ham, turkey, ice cream, chocolate, and nylon stockings. The chocolate and the nylon stockings are the really interesting things. At the PX, being able to get those sorts of things, that gave you... Such a cachet if you are an American. And it wasn't just here, by the way. The Australian servicemen didn't mm. didn't get all that, did they? <laughs> no. No. They weren't allowed into the American post exchanges. They had canteens, which kind of remind me of like being in primary school and <laughs> getting my tuck shop in my little brown paper bag. Because um, so, they were able to buy soft drink, tea, sandwiches, and other meals. The Australians had a tuck shop. Yeah. That's... Yeah, and the Americans had a bar. Yeah. So Australians couldn't buy alcohol, but hotels would be able to serve it to them twice a day for one hour. On the plus side, at least the hotels could choose what hours they wanted to serve it. And, Graham, I have a feeling that this was possibly the origin Of the pub crawl. Ah, so if one pub could open between one and two, and then one between two and three, and one between three and four, and one between four and... Yeah, you just... Yeah, makes sense to me. Yep, you just go from pub to pub, drinking for an hour and moving on. Works for me. But the Australians couldn't buy as much alcohol either, because they weren't paid equal. Yeah. So the Americans were paid roughly $11.50 a week, for an unmarried private, compared to the $3.50 a week an Australian private got paid. The American soldiers, be having access to the PX, having so much more money, as I say, it wasn't just here in Australia. I know that in England there was a phrase that came up that I have also heard from some of my older colleagues. 
The thing about Americans during World War II, the American soldier was overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Yep. That leads me to the next problem that I see when taking all of this into consideration, is that with more money and access to alcohol, chocolate, and stockings, the US soldiers had more to offer the Australian ladies. Mm-hmm. And I do know personally that a lot Maybe not all of us, but a lot of Australian ladies love a man in a uniform or with an accent. The two of them together must have been really hard to ignore, Mm -hmm. especially with the large portion of eligible Australian men overseas fighting. Yeah, see, there's the thing. Our soldiers had been involved in the war for two years longer than the Americans because the Americans didn't enter the war until 1941, whereas we'd been sending our soldiers overseas since 1939. And so there was a paucity of eligible Australian men There were these American soldiers with all of their money and access to all of these things. I wonder what could go wrong. I don't think it's going to surprise you when I say another cause of tension came from the treatment and segregation of the African-American soldiers by the US military. Well, we know, Graham, Australia didn't, nor really still does, treat its first people well at all. Though the Australian soldiers were reported to treat all soldiers alike, I was quite shocked to find out that there was actually a rule in place in 1940 to stop Australians of non-European origin or descent from joining the Navy and Army. Not the Air Force, they were less racist, really, but it was up to the discretion of local army medical officers to make subjective judgments on the type of the man presenting himself and whether the applicants were substantially of European origin to join. And somehow, even with this rule, it's estimated that over 3,000 First Nations men and women fought in World War II. So let me tell you about Reg Saunders. Love this story. Yeah. So Reg was the first Aboriginal Australian to be promoted to an officer of the Australian Army. He enlisted as a soldier in 1940. Now, Reg's dad fought in the First World World War and the Boer War? Boer War. Boer War. Oh, that rhymes. So Reg enlisted as a soldier and he saw action during the Second World War in North Africa, Greece, and Crete. He was actually taken as a prisoner of war in Crete, uh, and then he escaped from there, and he came back home and got trained up uh, as a lieutenant, and then continued on serving as a platoon commander in New Guinea uh, during 1944 and 1945. Mm -hmm. Reg is quoted saying, Australian soldiers I met in the army were not colour conscious towards the Aboriginal. Native troops from practically every colony in the empire fought and died in the struggle against tyranny and oppression, and Australian Aboriginals were no exception. This this warms my cockles a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm really glad about that. But there were still tensions between black and white US troops stationed in Australia. And as a result, African American soldiers in Brisbane were segregated from their white counterparts. 
when the African-American servicemen crossed the Brisbane River, which was seen as a natural barrier, they were assaulted and sometimes killed by white military police or MPs. So the banning of African-American soldiers from across the river caused the need for an American Red Cross Services Club in the commercial heart of South Brisbane. This is apparently located opposite the South Brisbane train station. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure which side of it it was on, but that's about the location these days. So Brisbane residents were notified of an impending services club for African-American service personnel via an article appearing in the Courier-Mail on 17th April 1942. Oh, that's this clipping here. Yep, yep. I wondered what this was. So let me press play on the Graham phone. A new services club to be opened soon by the American Red Cross in Gray Street, South Brisbane, has been specially built for coloured members of the US Army. The ground floor will contain two large lounges, recreation room, checking room, kitchen with modern equipment which will provide popular American dishes, dining room which will seat about 150 men, soda fountain, snack bar and writing and reading room with library attached. A large dormitory with hot and cold showers, hall with specially constructed dance floor and stage equipped with amplifiers and a balcony furnished with cane chairs and coloured tables for the dancers will occupy the second floor. The club will be known as the Dr. Carver Services Club, after the notable American scientist Dr. George Washington Carver, who died in America at the age of 78 this year, said club director Mr. H.L. Hawkins last night. Thank you, Graham. So while the U.S. Army prohibited coloured troops from entering the Whites entertainment establishments on Brisbane's north side, They also prevented white servicemen from entering the Dr. Carver Service Club, except upon formal invitation. Mm -hmm. Australian servicemen were sometimes invited to attend to the club. The US military regulations could not restrict Brisbane civilian men and women from going to the club, though. That's going to leave a mark on the the, the racist soul of particularly southern-based MPs. Mm Mm-hmm. It was popular with Australians due to its excellent jazz club and for its reputation for serving the best steak and eggs meal in Brisbane. Geraldine Russell, also a classical pianist, sometimes played for the troops. Now, if we know anything about Australians is that we like a good steak and eggs meal. We like good steak and eggs and we're actually quite fond of jazz. Yeah, yeah. Jazz is great. People like jazz. As you guessed, Graham, the white US soldiers were of course not super impressed with this turning out so well for their countrymen, and troops of the US 208th Coast Artillery rioted for 10 nights in March 1942, fighting against African Americans from the 394th Quartermaster Battalion. (sighs) Internecine warfare, isn't it such fun? Yeah, like, to say that things were tense in Brisbane was an understatement. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to what we all want to find out about what actually happened in the Battle of Brisbane. This is one of those stories that has been passed down but got mixed up over many, many years. And I suspect partly because it was so heavily censored at the time. But I mean, I've heard various versions of what sparked the Battle of Brisbane. I've heard various versions of who was involved in the Battle of Brisbane. Tell us more. Yeah, so I looked across about eight or nine 
different tales about what happened. And the majority of the articles that weren't written by Wikipedia say that just before noon on the 26th of November 1942, which happened to be Thanksgiving, an American MP tried to stop a fight in Albert Street. So an Australian soldier was hit on the head with an MP's baton and more Aussie soldiers became involved in the incident. It was short but violent brawl, but it was nothing like what was about to happen later in that day. Again, it was Thanksgiving and the pubs closed about 6.50pm. The streets were cluttered with service personnel. Private James R. Stein of the 404th Signal Company of the US Army had been drinking in the Australian Army canteen. He left the Australian canteen and started to walk towards the American Post Exchange. It was about 50 yards up the street on the corner of Creek and Adelaide Streets. Now, Private Stein has been indulging himself on the Australian beer, rumoured to be Forex. (laughs) So he met up with three Aussie soldiers who had also been drinking. They started to chat. As they were talking, along came Private Anthony E. O'Sullivan of the 814th MP Company, who challenged Private Stein for his leave pass. While Stein was fidgeting around to find his leave pass, the MP became impatient and asked Stein to hurry up as he did not have all night. At this point in time, his newfound Aussie mates had a go at the MP and told the MP to take it easy and leave Stein alone. You can see this happening at any pub in Australia on a Friday night. People, oh, he's my new mate. You stop picking on him. He's our mate, yeah. Yeah, you leave old Steiny alone or I'll give you something to... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So O'Sullivan raised his baton and the Australians started punching and kicking the MP. More Australian soldiers joined in, which drew out more American MPs. The MPs were outnumbered and they retreated back down the road towards the post exchange. Private Stein ran and stumbled into the post exchange also. Private O'Sullivan had to be carried back into the post exchange. Now, as this is happening, there are alarm bells ringing and the milling crowd outside the post exchange start throwing bottles, rocks, sticks, literally anything they can get their hands on. A parking sign was thrown through a window. The first Lieutenant Lester Duffin of the 814th MP Company arrived on the scene at 7.15, 25 minutes later. He saw about 100 Australian soldiers trying to break through a makeshift cordon around the post exchange door. Police Inspector Charles Price arrived on the scene as the crowd continued to grow. The American Red Cross building opposite the post exchange was also under siege from the Australians. Sporadic fights spread into the other streets in the city area. One American soldier who had just been to the Winter Garden Picture Theatre had to vacate a Brisbane tram headed to New Farm to avoid violent battles between Australian and American soldiers. The women workers in the city were escorted from the area by soldiers with fixed bayonets The Tivoli Theatre was closed by the MPs and patrons ordered back to barracks and their ships. Let's go back to the post exchange 
and Private Stein was trying unsuccessfully to retrieve his leaf pass from the prostrate Private O'Sullivan. He was handed a baton and told to help protect the post exchange. Can you imagine this poor guy? He was drunk. He got asked for his leave pass. These guys he just met end up beating up the MP on his side. He gets back into the post exchange. He's trying to get his leave pass. Then he's told to take this baton and fight the people that defended you and mm-hmm. caused the whole fight. Yep. This kept going for a while, and by 8 p.m., between two and 5,000 people were involved in the disturbance. A picket sentry, Duncan Capone, detained a small truck driven by Australian officers and three soldiers. The truck contained four Owen submachine guns and several boxes of ammunition and some hand grenades. Where were they going? Who knows? Who knows? The post exchange, I assume. <laughs> Probably. The local Brisbane Fire Brigade arrived, but did not use their hoses to quell the disturbance. Later on, the American authorities did criticise them for not taking action, but some Australian MPs even removed their armbands and joined in in the disturbance. Yeah, I've got to say, we're talking 5,000 brawling soldiers from two armies Nobody would know what was going on. All you know is that, you know, you see somebody wearing your uniform being beaten up by somebody else in somebody else's uniform, you're going to join in the fight because you don't care because, you know, we're right, yeah. Yep, yep, yeah, taking our women. Yeah. Or whatever. They took our jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So the 738th MP Battalion started to... This is the Americans. Mm-hmm. Started to arm their MPs with 12-gauge pump-action shotguns. One of these persons was Private Norbert Grant of C Company. Grant and Mercia elbowed their way to the front of the post exchange. Someone in the crowd saw that Grant had a gun, and suddenly he was accosted by people trying to get the gun off him. He jabbed one Aussie soldier with the shotgun... Another soldier grabbed the gun and someone else had him around the neck. The shotgun discharged. Uh, in all, three shots were fired. Ouch. This is not going to end well. Everything went silent and Private Norbert Grant then scrambled towards the post-exchange canteen. On his way, he broke the butt of the shotgun over an Australian's head and another casualty was an American soldier, Private Joseph Hoffman, he was one of the guards at the door of the post exchange and he received a fractured skull. So the death and the injuries as a result of these three shots are as followed. The first shot hit gunner Edward Sidney Webster from the two second anti-tank regiment in the chest, killing him immediately. Private Kenneth Christopher Henkel was also hit in the right cheek and the left forearm. Private Ian Kerr-Teeman, 19 years old, fell to the ground with a chest wound. Private Frank Corrie, 25 years old, was hit in the left thigh. Private Walter Maidment, 18 years old, had a punctured wound and bullet embedded in his right leg. Private Richard Ledson, 35 years old, had a compound fracture to the left ankle and was wounded in the left thigh 
and left hand and got shock. Civilian, that's right, civilian Joseph Michael Hanlon, 38 years old, he lived in 43 Brunswick Street, Fortitude Valley, apparently. Mm -hmm. I have his address. And he was wounded in the right shin. So from three shots, one man died, six were injured, Mm -hmm. including a civilian. Throughout the night, the following Australian soldiers received injuries from batons or other objects. Sapper John DeVosso was wounded in the thigh. Private Edward Harry French had a laceration on his head. Private Ronald Cameron had lacerations to the back of the head. It's noted that he was very drunk and refused treatment at the Exhibition Military Hospital in the showgrounds. Yeah, I'll be all right. I'll be fine. I'll walk it off. Private Joseph Blake suffered scalp wounds. Private John Raymond Campbell, lacerations to the head. He was also very drunk. Private Alvin Reuben Riley suffered head injuries and scalp wounds. Then the American MP Company were injured as followed. Private Joseph Hoffman, fractured skull. Private Anthony O'Sullivan, struck with a belt in the head. Private A. Nicholson, hit by rock. Private William Perello, injured wrist. Stanley Kapanis, lacerations of forehead and scalp from belt buckle. Harry Burtis, injured wrist. Sergeant John Jones, struck on head with bottle. Senior Sergeant Mark McGrath, struck on right shoulder with rock. Private Norbert J. Grant, injured to the left side of his head. In all, there was one Australian killed, six minor gunshot wounds, six baton injuries, and hundreds with black eyes, split lips, swollen cheeks, broken noses, and various abrasions. We didn't hear much about this, though. Well, we certainly didn't hear much about it at the time. No, because... The Chief Census Office in Brisbane ordered that no cabling or broadcasting of details of tonight's Brisbane Servicemen's Riot, background for census only, one Australian killed, six wounded, the Brisbane Courier-Mail had heavily censored the article the next day about a disturbance in which one person was killed and several were wounded, but it did not give any idea of the nationalities involved or any specific details of the disturbance. So you'd think that that was it. You would think. But no. No. No, the following night, the 27th of November, 1942, a crowd had gathered outside the American Red Cross building. The post-exchange building was under heavy security following the previous night's disturbance. Heavily armed American MPs were located on the first floor of the Red Cross building. The crowd moved to the corner of Queen and Edward Streets, outside of General Douglas MacArthur's headquarters. Mm-hmm. He was the, the big boss at the time. They shouted abuse towards the building, but MacArthur was apparently in New Guinea at the time. So he probably couldn't hear them. No, unless they shouted significantly louder, possibly through a phone. Ah, well, that is, after all, the headquarters of Apple in Brisbane these days, but I don't think that General MacArthur had one then. <laughs> No, he was in Port Moresby, so I doubt he heard any of the yelling. Half dozen strong packs of Australian men spread through the city, beating any American soldiers they found. The especially vulnerable were American servicemen seen with Australian women. 
Australian military police and Brisbane civilian police did little to intervene. Australian junior officers were either unwilling or unable to restore discipline within their ranks. By midnight, the violence had subsided, but at least 20 Americans had received injuries serious enough to require hospitalisation. Many plans were adopted to ensure that peace would prevail in Brisbane after this second night of unrest. The units involved in the disturbance were relocated out of Brisbane. The MP strength was increased. The Australian canteen was closed. Mm-hmm. And the American post exchange was relocated. Private Norbert Grant, the gentleman that shot the shotgun, mm-hmm. was court-martialed for manslaughter on the 27th of February 1943, but found not guilty on the grounds of self-defence. Five Australians were convicted for assault as a result of the Battle of Brisbane, with one person being jailed for six months. Fabulous. We're talking here about our friends and our allies, and we're fighting them. But... Sometimes the difference between friends and enemies can be really close. I mean, I'm reminded of the sailor who was stranded on a desert island with nothing but palm fronds and sea anemones to live on. Finally, when he was rescued, the rescuers asked why he was covered in anemones with a ring of palm fronds in arm's reach. And he replied, well, I like to keep my fronds close, but my anemones closer. This was a serious episode, Graham. <laughs> I know, but it had to end. <laughs> Maybe these jokes should end as well. Maybe. All right. It's quite a brew, though, when you're trying to mix serious with something less serious. Talking of brews, here's a question that you might like. Who were the primary brewers of beer in the Middle Ages? I know this one. Mm. Women. But not just Women. Witches. We'll find out more in our next episode of History Tarts. And if you've got something that you'd like us to give the History Tarts treatment to, a story from history that you want to know more about, then make sure you send us an email at historytarts at gmail.com. Graham, we even have a website now. People can find us at historytarts.com. Fabulous. Or go to your favourite podcast purveyor and make sure that you subscribe to History Tarts. <laughs>